We are in the lost and found department again in the Bible, and we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 15. That's where we've been for a couple weeks now. I've uh, been looking at this, uh, this chapter and going down into this parable that Jesus spoke so many years ago, spoke it to a group that was actually criticizing him, but there were also those that were there listening to him teach. And when Jesus taught in parables, and as I've mentioned before, a parable is a, is a story that comes alongside another story, a deeper story with deeper meaning. And some people will just go away sometimes hearing the parable just on the surface, and they will go away and say, oh, that was an interesting story. And others will stop and, and they'll pause and they'll consider it and they'll go deeper. And often you see those kind of people uh, near Jesus as he's teaching. Some walked away, never ever believing, never repenting of their sin. Others uh, ended up uh, listening and staying on and then becoming uh, really his followers, his and then later the church, right? The Christians that would meet and they would follow and they would really sit at the feet of Jesus. Today we are here really sitting at the feet of Jesus learning, all right? From his word because he's left us his word and we get to study it together this morning. And if you want an outline, we looked at this already. The major outline for Luke chapter 15 is a lost sheep. And we talked about that. How a good shepherd left the 99 that were there in the flock and he went searching for the one lost sheep and did not return until he had found that sheep. And uh, we looked at that. And then last week, the lost silver. A woman who had 10 coins and she loses one and she sweeps the whole house after lighting a light until she finds it and you see the search that goes on. And, and then today we're going to look at this section of Luke 15, 11 to 24 that deals with a lost son. And it's important to note that that's the context of this whole uh, chapter or this parable is it's dealing with lost things. And it's one thing to lose a coin. It's one thing to lose a sheep. But it's another thing to lose a son and to lose a, a, a soul. And there are lots of people wandering out there that are lost and they don't know they're lost. And there's also uh, believers who have walked away from the Lord and are backslidden and uh, in many ways living a life of someone who's lost. And I would just say in the context of this, um, that is in keeping with the mission of Jesus Christ. The key verse to the Gospel of Luke is found in Luke 19.10. And it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I am thankful that he's still in the business of seeking and saving that which is lost. And uh, he, he wants to do that today. And just as he's always done. Well, we're going to pick it up here in Luke chapter 15 and in verse 1. And just give me a second as I call up my notes here. There we go. Luke chapter 15 and in verse 1. And it, this is just the, remember, the, the setting. And so I'm reading these three verses for the setting. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying, And we've already looked at two parts of that parable. And today we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Luke 15, 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. 
And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. There wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and the sandals, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Lord, we come before you again this morning thanking you for the word of God. We pray that as we open it, Lord, you'd open it to our hearts and minds. And, and, oh, Lord, teach us. Convict us where we need conviction. Help us to turn to you in faith and trust you more. Maybe some, Lord, for the very first time, asking for forgiveness of sin and trusting you. Thank you that you're a God who is very quick for mercy and slow to anger. And Lord, I pray even today that, Lord, you do your work as only you can. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to this section of Luke, and the first thing we see in that portion that we just read is that there's a a very harsh request that takes place. A harsh request. It says here, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Now this harsh request was a very uh, simple request, but it was harsh in the sense because the son, in essence, is going to his father and asking for his inheritance. And he's asking for his inheritance early, right? I mean, most of the time you get an inheritance after someone dies. So let's go a little further. When the son comes and says, Father, give me what is coming to me. He's saying, I wish you were dead so I could have this. Now, sometimes that's a little harsh, isn't it? Sometimes we do things out of the heart of greed and out of a heart of sin that hurt other people. You can imagine how that would have grieved his father to have had that kind of statement come from his younger son. He comes to him and he says, I wish you were dead. Now, why don't you just get it over with now and give me my inheritance? And so the father does. He actually honors that request. Here we see really a picture. And as I've said before, there's always a a deeper meaning to these. Really, the father who's not named here, he's just a father, 
He is a, a father, obviously a loving father. We know that of his actions later on. He's someone that has this son. This son is wanting to walk away from his father's household. He really pictures for us, this son does, as the, the sinner who, though in Adam, remember Adam was created, and God breathed his life into Adam, put his stamp on him. We talked about that last week when we were looking at the coins, weren't we? And then Adam sinned, and he went away from God. And God let him do it. And I've often wondered, why did this father stop? Why didn't he just stop right there and say, no, I'm not going to do it that way? And that son would have been limited in where he could have gone. But you know what? The father here really shows us the heart of our heavenly father. He doesn't force people to do anything. Uh, he, he wants us to be near him. He wanted Adam and Eve to be right with him in the, and walk with him in the cool of the day in the garden. He wanted that. But they chose to sin. And when they sinned, the sin separated them from a holy God, a righteous God. The Bible says in Genesis 2 verse 7, that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, it says, became a living being. The man became a living being. You know, this father, as he is watching his son want to leave and to go off, and I'm going to have to have you guys probably um, advance these slides. I knew this was going to happen today. I was having issues earlier, uh, but that keeps going back on me. So just make sure, it, whatever reference I quote, make sure it's up there. Um, but anyways, Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, and I'm going to grab my mic here. The red mic. All right. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And you have here this father who is has breathed life into his son after all this is his son right and and life came from him i'm just going to shut this one down too here there we go getting a little ring and the reason i'm saying that is because this son decides that he's going to go away from his father even after he had been given life by his father and and we read of that by the way that's the condition of sinful man in our heart, we want to deny God and we want to go away from Him. Because when sin is before holy God, it's uncomfortable for us, isn't it? And we find in this son, uh, what arose in his heart would eventually play out in his actions. And he was sitting there and he was having those thoughts about how can this man that's my father, uh, when can he pass off so I can get my inheritance? By the way, it wasn't all of his inheritance. He's the younger son. And we find out that he would have, under the Mosaic system, under the law, he would have gotten about a third of his father's wealth. That's usually how it was relegated uh, if there were two sons in that family. Anyways, uh, that's the way things go. But you know, the Bible talks about that too. The Bible talks about the fact that uh, we can play a fool. All right? Because the Bible says this, a very sad verse, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you notice the italics there, there is. Those mean that in the, in the actual Hebrew, it can be read, the fool has said in his heart, no God. The there is is sort of added for our understanding of it, but I think it sometimes confuses it because it's easy to say no God. No God. And people do that. 
They don't want to do things God's way. They want to do it their way. And after all, that's in our heart. We, we do that. We desire those things. And God says you're a fool when you do that. You know why you're a fool? Because you have taken the only way of salvation and the only way of fellowship with God and the only way to heaven. And you've said, I'm going to try it a different way. There is no other way. And I can't imagine something more foolish than trying to make your own way to heaven or another way to heaven, only to have it collapse eternally and end up in hell. My friends, there is a harsh request that is made. Secondly, there's a hard reality. Sometimes God gives us what we want, all right? He gives us the things that um, we request, and it's a hard reality of what takes place. It says here in Luke fifteen thirteen, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Wasted his possessions with prodigal living. There's a lot that could be said there. There's a lot that isn't said there. I think all of us could, have, could fill in our imagination with what took place in that far country. And there have been times when our hearts want to go to that kind of far country, and sometimes we have. The Lord came to a far country, by the way. He came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. I was one of those that was lost, and he came and he found me. And I'm thankful for that. Listen, this son had a very hard way of coming to the realization of that. It says, he gathered all together. That's everything. He goes and journeys to a far country. He's away from home. He's in a strange land. And there, and the word is wasted. He wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Often think of that. How much money today, just today in our world, will be spent on things that are wasteful? Wasteful living. All of us have waste in our life that we spend things we probably shouldn't. But just think of the amount of money that was spent last night at some bar or some club. And how much money in the world was spent on Saturday night. And you imagine what that money could do if it wasn't spent in wasteful living. I say that because that's just one area. But there's lots of other areas, right? That's an easy one to point out. But there's a lot of areas we waste, don't we? And in this case, it was a waste because it was sin, is what it was. He was going out. He was investing in something for the now. And much of sin is always, really, it's in the now. It's pleasurable for a season. The book of Hebrews reminds us of that. It compares Moses, and in this chapter 11 of Hebrews, it's the hall of faith. And it describes Moses, okay? You remember Moses was uh, the story of Moses in the book of Exodus. We find out that, remember, um, because the Pharaoh made an edict that all the male children of the Hebrews should be thrown into the Nile, uh, Moses, as an infant, his mother takes him and puts him in a little ark, a basket, and there puts him in the Nile. She met the request of the law. And uh, the, the little basket goes up against these little reeds and all that. And the Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe at the river Nile. And she hears the crying of this child. And God had worked all this out. She takes pity on him. And anyways, Moses ends up 
really, as Pharaoh's daughter. She, he, she adopts him. And even better than that, she needed a nursing mother, and she finds out that there's a woman that's a nursing mother, happens to be the Mo- Moses' mother. And Moses' mother gets to raise him under the umbrella of the king of Egypt. And he's raised as a prince in Egypt. He could have been in that line of Pharaoh. But you know what? He chose to suffer with the people of God and to lead them away from Egypt, a picture of the world, a picture of a far country. And he chose to lead them out of that as God's deliverer. And it says that by faith, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. My friends, Egypt always has more treasure. Always. You know, you know, even today, they still uncover tombs there in Egypt, you know, that the sands have just kind of reclaimed. And they, they, especially in the last couple hundred years, there's been lots of excavations in Egypt. And I often think of the, the tomb of like King Tut, right? Tutankhamun. And the gold mask. You often see that depicted in any, you know, display on Egypt or whatever. And they talk about the wealth of ancient Egypt. Lots of gold. It was the most powerful empire in the world of its, in its day. And it had all the technology. It had all the, you know, the best medicine. It had all those different things for that day. And yet Moses said, I'm not going to go that route. I'm not going, I'm not. First of all, he wasn't Pharaoh's daughter. He was a Hebrew. He was someone that God had promised years before had promised that you know some 400 years before had given a land to and you know the story how the hebrews in the time of famine went down into egypt and then they ended up after 400 years being slaves there a foreign land will always enslave the people of god that's the process by where sin goes and it always by the way leads to death always Remember Paul Harvey years ago? Now, anybody younger than me probably doesn't remember Paul Harvey. I don't know, but Paul Harvey, remember the rest of the story? And we'd hear that every day around noontime on the radio. He'd have a, a little segment on the radio and he'd tell these wonderful stories and had great, uh, great accounts. A lot of true things, you know? And one of the things I remember, he talks about um, how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And I can remember that little story, and I can picture it in my mind's eye as he would tell that story. I'll never tell it like he did. And, but he talked about how an Eskimo, by tradition, how they kill a wolf. And it's, it's not really a hard process. It, actually, the wolf ends up killing himself is really what takes place. They would take a knife, and they would drip some blood on the knife and let it freeze. And then they would drip a little bit more blood on the knife and let it freeze again until they kind of had a, a, a knife with a frozen popsicle of blood on it. Then they would take their knife, and they would stick it in the snow and make sure that it's frozen into the snow there. And then they would just walk away from it. And the nose of the wolf is like any, you know, in, in like, uh, you know, dogs are very similar, right? Great nose. They can smell things a long ways off. And they would smell that blood, and a wolf would come, and he would hone in on the blood, and then he would begin to lick that frozen blood on that knife blade. 
And as the wolf would lick the frozen blade, um, his tongue would become numb because it's cold. And then pretty soon he's down to the bare metal, but now he's cutting his own tongue and he's tasting his own blood. And he'll do that until he dies and bleeds out. The book of James says this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's always the way sin goes. Starts in the heart. Starts in the mind. This son, in Luke 15, he looked at his father and he saw the wealth of his father. And all he saw is how he might be able to use that wealth for a little bit. Not realizing that it would bring about his own demise. And if he would continue in that way, it would bring about his death. Oh, I'm thankful that God intervenes and he doesn't just let us go by the way of the sinner. He could have done that with Adam and with Eve when they sinned. He could have just left them alone and said, oh, that's it. Start again. Let them go off and, and have their way and die and I'll just, I'll just make a new man, a new woman. But instead he decided he would take care of them. And the very first illustration of the, in the Bible of a covering um, for sin is one that God provides in the covering of skins for Adam and Eve after they recognized their sin had caused them to be naked before God. And he does that. God is the first uh, person who ever killed something in this world. And it was an animal, most likely a lamb, that took the place of Adam and Eve. Why? So they could be brought back into a place of fellowship with the Lord. Even though their consequence of sin was still there, but God provided a way. And you come to the book of Romans, and he talks about the first Adam. The first Adam brought death, but the second Adam... The second Adam is Jesus. He was born in Adam's race. He was man. He came to this world. He came to this far country we had left ourselves in. And there he breaks in and he comes in. And yet being tempted by sin, never sinned. Right? He never, was, he never sinned. Thankful for that. You see the reality of sin's price. And by the way, it's always for a season, right? Pleasure of sin for a season. Uh, seasons come to an end. Our, our summers, believe it or not, is going to come to an end eventually here, okay? We're in the fall, I know, but, but it feels like summer still. Uh, it, but I, I can just, I'm going to make a prediction, all right, that if we wait a little bit longer, we'll see some white stuff out there, okay? Uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'll tell you, that's, that's history's on my side with that, right? Luke fifteen fourteen, but when he spent all, when he spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. He began to be in want. You know, sin brings separation. First of all, it separates us from God. The prodigal son of Luke fifteen was separated from his father so long as he was away in that foreign land, and so long as he was in that condition. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says this, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. You know, I think of this because that father in Luke 15 
pictures for us our Heavenly Father. Not that God loses His ability to know all things and hear all things, but when someone sins, you are separated from God, and it's like you're in a distant country, and you can cry out and you can do whatever, but until you come back to the Father, until you turn around and go back, you know what? You cannot be heard by God. Because there's only one way. And it's a way of repentance. It's a way through the cross. I'm thankful that though we are separated from God in sin, He still loves us. A verse that we quote often, Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. I can say that there is a beautiful picture in Luke chapter 15 of a loving father, and he didn't stop loving a son that had gone away. If you have a prodigal in your life, don't stop loving them. Don't stop loving them. Sin brings sorrow. Sin brings sorrow. If you don't believe it, go to a gravesite. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. How many of us have stood around at a funeral or a grave somewhere and we've wept? Happens all the time. Because the wages of sin is death, and death brings sorrow. It brings sorrow because the one we love is no longer in our sight. They are separated from us. And you can imagine how it breaks God's heart for us to remain in our sin. Because the Bible says spiritually we are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. It brings sorrow. Brings sorrow to God, but it also brings sorrow to us. You wonder why people want to give up, right? Because there's a lot of sorrow in the world. It's a tough place. Well, you see the reality of, of sin and the reality of the pain of sin. Verse 15, it says, Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, I would say, you know, as Jesus is telling this parable, first of all, what would have stood out to the Pharisees and those present was this, that there's a Jewish boy and he's going to feed swine. You see, under the dietary laws in the Mosaic system in the Old Testament, they were to have nothing to do with pigs. Later that was changed. In the book of Acts, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, is given the command to rise and, and eat. Uh, eat of that which is unclean. And it was an illustration of the fact that God could take Gentiles, which the Jews considered unclean, and bring them into fellowship. And there was a picture there, Cornelius, a Gentile is saved. But in the Old Testament, they had to keep that law. And they were to not have anything to do with pigs. And yet here's this Jewish boy. He's, he's not gone away into a far country and been successful. He's gone to the very lowest of the low. He's now feeding pigs. And look what this says. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. What a sad commentary. He's there feeding pigs, and there's nothing left for him. By the way, sin will do that. Sin will always take you along, and it will leave you starving spiritually. Starving. And it'll have nothing to do with you. No one gave him anything. I think of that when the money's flowing and somebody's sitting around and buying drinks for everybody at the bar or whatever. It's great, but when you run out of money, huh, 
guess what? You know what? When the money stops, they don't care. Your friends will walk away. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods of the swine, and no one gave him anything. I think of the shame that that would have brought, too. I think of that, you know, when you're growing up and you want to make your, your mom and your dad proud, right? And later on, maybe you're not making your mom and dad proud. Here's this Jewish boy feeding swine, and I, I was thinking he probably wasn't sit, standing there saying, wow, look at me now. Boy, I've really achieved. I've made my dad look really good. No, he brought great shame to himself and to his family. Sin will do that. 1 John 2, verse 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him. That's in Christ. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And that's given to believers, by the way, that verse. Because it's possible for believers to go out and to live in sin, and in doing so, they bring discredit to their Heavenly Father. How many times have you heard the excuse of someone who says, uh, I don't want to be a Christian because I know too many of them, right? Because they've brought shame on the Lord's name. That happens. Hopefully you're not living that way. Because a life lived for the Lord is worth it. Even if you suffer consequences in this life, to be, remain close to Him or abide in Him. Stay close to Him. It's worth it. Because you won't be ashamed at His coming. You won't be ashamed when you stand before Him and you get into His very presence in heaven. Proverbs thirteen fifteen reminds us, Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. That's a simple little statement. The way of the unfaithful is hard. And my friends, I've heard testimony after testimony of people who have had some hard things in their life. And I praise God that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And God is able to roll back the years that the moth has eaten and the rust has corrupted, right? He's able to do that because He's God. But how much better would it be for someone to be able to live a whole life for the Lord? Years ago, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 19th century, he was, at, he, was, he was asked the following morning about the meetings that he had the previous night. And he, someone asked him how many people were saved. And he, and he said, well, four and a half. Four and a half. And the guy kind of scratched his you know, head a little bit. And he said, oh, oh you mean three, three, uh, four, yeah, four adults and, and one child? And Moody said, oh, no. He said, four children and one adult. He said, those children have their whole life to live for Christ. But that adult's already wasted half of it. Four and a half were saved. Uh, have you been living for the Lord? That's a question. I have to ask myself that. Look at the man in the mirror and say, are you living for the Lord? Because these days, I was having this conversation with a friend this week. And he says, um, he's about my age. Actually, he's just about hit 50. He said, I'm really thinking about my mortality. And I said, well, it's good to think about that because... We're mortal. And I shared a little bit of my testimony. But I, I, you know, I was thinking about that. I was like, you think more of your mortality as the days get further and further behind you, the piling up behind you. Live for the Lord now, today. 
You see a humble return. Verse 17, all right? A humble return. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I love that phrase that says, when he came to himself, right? See, we have to come to ourselves. Sometimes that's the hardest person to come to. It really is. I'm the guy that has to live with me, all right? And it's not always fun to live with me. He came to himself. He realized what he had done. He realized where he was. By the way, you cannot come to faith in Christ and trust Christ unless you first come to yourself and acknowledge your sin. That's it. Patrick Morley, in his book, I Surrender, he writes this in regard to the church's integrity problem. And he says, it is a misconception, quote, that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. He goes on to say, it is revival without reformation, without repentance. You see, a lot of people want to come to a church, and they're probably sitting in churches all over our country today. Maybe some here. I don't know. I don't know your heart before the Lord. But you come, and you say, I want a little bit of Christ in my life, but I also want my sin in my life. You can't. You can only serve one master. You can only turn to Christ, and when you do so, you have to repent. You have to turn from sin. Some people walk away because that's a little too hard. I don't want that kind of Jesus. I don't want the kind of Jesus that the Bible talks about. I want the kind of Jesus you can put on a shelf and you can dust him off every now and again or take him out if you want a little bit more of Jesus. But I don't want the kind of Jesus that makes me come to myself and repent and turn to him in faith. It's the only way you'll get him, by the way. The real Jesus. Verse 18 He says this, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Wow. You see the resolve here? In the beginning of this passage, he said, give me. Now he says, make me. What a difference. That's a change of attitude. That's a heart attitude that has changed. And in the process, he had to come to himself. He realized that he was starving. And then in verse 18, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven. By the way, our sin is always an affront to a holy God. Whether it's a private sin no one else knows about, whether it's a, a sin that you might think is a very little thing, it's always something that violates God. And this son got it right. He says, I've, I've sinned against heaven. Sinned against heaven. But then he says, and before you. Our sin also often has an offense before others because it causes that offense. In this case, he had broken fellowship with his father. He had brought shame to his father. He had done all those things. He had wasted his father's money. It wasn't even rightfully his at that point. He got it early. Wow. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
I think really that shows the humility of this son. He didn't even want to go back and be called a son. He just says, make me a hired servant. I had life a lot better in your house. And yet, that wasn't going to be the case. By the way, when God made Adam and breathed life into him and he became a living soul, God didn't just give up on him when Adam sinned. Oh, God, in the story of redemption, the story of bringing mankind back to him, uh, is a a story weaved throughout the whole Bible. And I'm thankful that that's the kind of God he wants all people everywhere, young and old and boys and girls and men and women, and he wants them to be saved. He's doing the work, by the way. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you know, you wouldn't come to faith in Christ except the Lord already initiated it. He came to where we are. As I said earlier, he doesn't force you. But you know, as this son was away in a far country, he remembered what he had. And it was brought back to his mind. And God is so great in that he stirs up our mind. And he brings to mind a conviction of sin. He also he causes us to be drawn to Jesus Christ. And I'm glad for that. Because it leads to this. And by the way, it's, there's, that's the only way that can be done. He offers us a full pardon. And that goes with the last point. A happy reunion. It says, and he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You see a beautiful picture here of the way that uh, God was going, or the picture here of the, our Heavenly Father, who has his eyes out for the repentant sinner. And he's getting ready to receive him. But you know what? It says there in verse 20, and he arose. If that son had never taken the first step of repentance, he would have still remained in that country until he starved to death. And my friends, you'll never come to Christ unless you turn towards him. You'll never be pardoned from your sin Unless you receive his gift of grace. Years ago, there was a man named George Wilson back in 1830. George Wilson killed a government employee. And he was caught and he was tried and he was sentenced to death by hanging. President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, actually intervened and granted the man on behalf of his family and all that, granted him a full pardon and signed it off and sent the pardon to the, to the uh, jail that this man was in. And the man looked at the pardon and didn't want it. He'd rather be hanged. The case actually came before the Supreme Court of the United States. Never before had someone taken a presidential pardon and not received it. What is it? What do you do? And it was there that Justice Marshall wrote an opinion on the case, and this is what he said. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. My friends, Jesus Christ offers you a full, unconditional pardon for your sin. 
He promises to redeem you and bring you back into that. But if you will not receive it, it is no pardon for you. Don't be such a fool. I like what it says here back in this verse that's before us. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. Aren't you glad that, that God never took his eye off you when you were lost in sin? And he doesn't. He, does, he knows everything that's going on today and ever has been and ever will be. And his eye is not a stranger to the sinner. He sees us when we're still afar off. And he goes out and meets us. He runs to him. You know, I think of that because in the law, in the law, it talks about the rebellious son. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that the rebellious son, all right, was to go out and be killed by stoning. That's awful. I can imagine this father, he sees his son afar off, and he thinks, I better get there first. My friends, I'm glad that Christ got there first. I'm glad glad that the cross is a reminder of certainly the cross of Christ where he took my punishment first. Fell on his neck and he kissed him. Instead of taking a baseball bat, he kissed him. That's grace. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Only one problem, he was his son. It's not a problem. He'd been brought back into that fold. He was lost and now was found. And you see a beautiful restoration that goes on. A beautiful restoration. By the way, the world may may condemn you. Satan himself may condemn you. But God will not if you'll come to him in a repentant heart and trust him by faith. Romans chapter 8. Verse 33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I imagine there were those men of the city, they were waiting, waiting for a rebellious son to come back, and there were some of those Pharisees in their mind, you know what, when this story was being told, they were there and they were saying, Kill him! Kill him! Stone him! He brought shame! He fed pigs! Thank God. It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Oh, I'm thankful that he paid the price for your salvation and mine. We see some things that are are done here. It says, But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You see, this son given a new change of clothes. And the robe was symbolic, really, of taking off the old garment and putting on the new. The Bible says, for the believer, you know what? We're to put off the works of the flesh and we're to put on Christ. I'm glad because if we don't have His righteousness, we couldn't stand before Him someday and be with Him in heaven. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of His righteousness. 
as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The beauty of a repentant sinner who is now clothed with salvation. The picture of righteousness. In the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 3, it says, And be found in him, all right, in Christ, not having my own righteousness. By the way, my own righteousness, according to the book of Isaiah, is as filthy rags. I would have looked like the prodigal son standing among the pigs, feeding them whatever is left over, right? That's our works of righteousness. They fall far short. But look what it says, which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You can only put that robe on by faith. And that's his faith. Then look what it says here. They put a ring on him, on his finger. Remember that? The ring was a symbol of authority. It designated whose household you were in, whose name you had. Just like a wedding ring is a token between a husband and a wife of a mutual love and affection that has brought them together. And it says, I'm not my own. I belong to that woman right over there. She's got a wedding ring on her finger and we're married. All right, that's my wife, Sandy, and she's my wife. And don't you come between us. (laughs) And the father says, here's a son. Here's my ring. Don't you get in between us. You're mine. And it was a place of authority. And then secondly, all right, he gets, uh, well, third, he he gets the robe. He gets the ring. And... um, then you see also the shoes. The shoes were the kid's shoeless. Uh, where did his shoes go? Well, he lost them. And here God, or the, the Father here, puts on new shoes. He's walking in different places now. And that really speaks about the walk or the service that we have, our position. He's a son. And then lastly, there's a great rejoicing that goes on. Look, it says, And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. That's why I say this is a picture of a sinner who was dead in their trespasses and sins. Because that's really, the, his son was as good as dead. And now he's made alive. Picture of the gospel. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. And I like it because, listen, when someone, remember we read this earlier in Luke 15, when even one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. There's going to be an eternal hallelujah, an eternal uh, happy place with the saints in glory as we stand there and rejoice over the Lamb who was slain for us and who has given us that place in heaven. It's going to be a great day, and the marrying will never cease. Oh, I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and even now, again, teach us, Lord, as only you can. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.